This is episode 130 with the health editor of Lifehacker and the author of Outbreak, 50 Tales of Epidemics That Terrorize the World, Ms. Beth Squarecki. Welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm bringing you an extra episode this week about the coronavirus. All of our lives have been disrupted over the last couple weeks, and things do seem to be getting worse. So I wanted to give you some advice for runners out there on how to handle your training and your race schedule in a time like this. I'm bringing on Beth Squarecki today to discuss pandemics from a historical perspective talk more about why this is unlike the flu, and what you can do to keep yourself and your loved ones healthy and safe. Beth is the health editor of one of the largest blogs in the world, lifehacker.com, and she runs their health and fitness vertical called Vitals. She has published two books, Genetics 101 and Outbreak, 50 Tales of Epidemics That Terrorize the World. Her work has been featured in Science, Medscape, Scientific American, and many other major media sources. Be sure to stay tuned after our conversation. I'll be talking about what you can do to stay fit if you're isolated at home or if your spring race has been canceled. Without further delay, I hope you learn a lot from my guest, Ms. Beth Squarecki. Well, thank you for making yourself available on such short notice. Yeah, no problem. I'm sure everyone's schedule is a little weird, but we're recording this on a Sunday. So here we are. Yeah, yeah, it's been a crazy week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Anyways. But I'm excited to talk to you, Beth. Um, you know, for our listeners, you're the health editor at lifehacker.com. You've written a book called Outbreak, 50 Tales of Epidemics That Terrorize the World. And your science writing has been featured in places like Scientific American and Science. So I'm excited to get your perspectives on the coronavirus and what it means for athletes. So let's dive right in, shall we? Sure. Um, so What are your first impressions? Let's start super general right now. What are your first impressions about the coronavirus right now? How serious is this? How should we be thinking about this as uh, runners and athletes? Yeah. So, okay. So my, my perspective is from in the U S because, you know, it's, it's hitting different countries at different times and differently. And, you know, a few weeks ago we were telling everybody like, oh, this is not a big deal. Don't worry too much about it. Just, you know, wash your hands and be prepared the same way you would for any emergency. And now it's, you know, we're in a different part of this whole story, right? So like now all of a sudden people are like, wait, I thought it wasn't that serious. We were comparing it to the flu. And now all of a sudden everything's closing. Um, I talked to, you know, a friend whose gym is closing and things like that. So so my perspective is this is very serious. It's something that we need, to, like, we shouldn't panic about it, but it's something we need to be smart about. And um, and the reason for a lot of the things that are being suggested, including, you know, like canceling a lot of gatherings and, and you know, closing some schools and things like that, it's an attempt to make it harder for this to spread. Because we have seen, especially in, in other countries, if you look at what's going on in Italy right now, um, this this virus can end up infecting a lot of people fairly quickly and overwhelming the health system. And even aside from how serious it is for any one individual, um, because it's not serious for everybody, um, especially if you're younger, but it can really 
it can be bad. You can get it if you're younger. It's especially bad if you're older or if you have other health conditions. Like I have asthma. I'm a little bit worried for myself. Um, and it's also especially an issue just for the the effect on the health systems, because right now in Italy, like if you have some completely unrelated condition that you need healthcare for, you're going to a, a hospital that's completely overwhelmed in many respects. And um, we definitely want to avoid anything like that here. So it's it's sort of a weird time right now because it seems like there's a lot of concern and maybe panic about it. But I do think we need to sort of be smart about it and, you know, pay attention to these measures that are are trying to stop it from spreading or at least stop it from spreading too fast. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you said that, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, isn't this like the flu? And I was talking to my uncle just the other day and he said the same thing. Um, can you compare it to the flu? What what makes it different from the typical influenza virus that goes around every year? So, okay. So with the caveat that I am not an expert on this, but I will tell you what I've been reading and what's come up in my reporting and and so on. So first of all, this is a brand new virus. There's a lot we don't know about it yet. Um, you know, it's still up in the air whether people are transmitting it before they're symptomatic or if they could transmit it without developing symptoms at all. Like that's not a thing we're really sure of with this virus. There's a lot of things we're unsure of. Um, in terms of comparing it to the flu, it is a little bit different in some respects. It is definitely more deadly if you get it. Like in terms of like of the people who get it, like if you get it, what are your chances of dying? Um, it's much worse with COVID than with the flu. Um, the the picture of who tends to get the more severe symptoms is a bit different. Like the flu um, is worse for older people, but also for children. And this one seems to skew more towards older people being the ones to develop symptoms. But as far as we know, and again, these numbers are very preliminary um, because it's still like a brand new thing, right? It's hitting a lot of places for the first time. Um, you know, we know that the, the, the latest numbers that I've seen are that about 20% of people who get this, who that we know who have it, um, end up needing like serious intervention in a hospital to help, you know, save their life or try to, um, like being on a ventilator in a hospital, that kind of thing, which means 80% of people don't get these very severe symptoms. But that doesn't mean that 80% of people like, cough and then get better and they're fine, right? Like it could still be, if you've ever had flu and um, I fortunately have not had like a flu that was confirmed as actually the flu, but if you know people who have, you know that it gets really bad, right? That like, even if you're not in the hospital, it can still be like a very rough knock you off your feet kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, I, I don't think it's fair to compare it to the flu, partly because we know that when it gets serious, it gets serious for a lot more people. It's more deadly. We know that, um, you know, like it's a little bit different in terms of, you know, like how contagious it is and th some things like that. One thing they that the World Health Organization keeps saying is that this seems to be more containable than the flu um, if you actually take measures to, you know, for social distancing, like keeping people apart. But I think one other thing that's very important to remember is the flu is something that we've all been exposed to in one form or another. It changes a little bit every year, but like the flu has already existed everywhere around the world. And a lot of people have gotten the flu. A lot of people have been exposed to the flu. A lot of people have gotten flu vaccines and COVID meanwhile is completely brand new. And it's really, 
it's kind of unfair to compare any established disease to something that is brand new and just showing up in places for the first time. Like there are a lot of ways that you, we can't necessarily look at one number and then another and compare them fairly. You know, like there are a lot of things that are still emerging, a lot of things we still don't know. And, you know, if this were to become something that's like established worldwide, the way the flu is, it would probably behave differently than it is now. There's just so many unknowns, so many things that people are still figuring out. Now, that's one of the things that makes it so dangerous, right, is that we don't know much about it. This is the first time we've experienced it, and and nobody has any immunity. And the thing that I was reading that really struck me about influenza is that, you know, there's a good chunk of the population that is going to be immune to influenza through the vaccine, and we simply don't have that now. Moreover, we don't really understand this, and so it's behaving very differently, and because of that, if we treat it like the flu, then that obviously means we have a lot of blind spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So, you know, with your study of so many different uh, pandemics in the past, is there a good historical analogy to something like this? I know it's fairly early, but one of the things that I thought would be really interesting to talk to you specifically about COVID is the fact that you've written this really fascinating book, you know, 50 Tales of Epidemics That Terrorize the World. You know, is this Mm -hmm. behaving in a similar way? There isn't like one specific thing you can point to that acts very much like this, right? It's not like there's, you know, we can't say like, oh, this is exactly like when this hit or when that hit. Um, people are pointing a lot to the um, to the, the 1918 flu influenza. So this hit right after World War II and killed more people than the war did. Um, and, you know, there might be some similarities in the sense that it's, you know, it's a respiratory thing. It seemed to have a fairly high fatality rate. Um, But again, like this isn't the flu, right? We can't compare it directly. Um, And when you look at some of the other things, I mean, a lot of the the epidemics and pandemics in the book were things from throughout history. So we're looking at some things from like, you know, like bubonic plague in the days before antibiotics, right? It's a very different deal than than anything we have today. you know, and a lot of these historical plagues, like with modern medical care, would have been different. Um, but I do find it interesting that, especially like social aspects of these, are often like there, there are sort of some lessons to learn from history. You know, and like with whether you're looking at the Black Death or, or you know, some other diseases from back then. Um, you know, people were trying quarantines, right? The whole idea of a quarantine, like it literally comes from the words for forty days. And they would like quarantine these ships. And that didn't necessarily always work very well, as we're kind of seeing today with, um, you know, cruise ship quarantines and things like that. Like sometimes you spread a disease when you think you're containing it. Sometimes, you know, you think you're shutting off your borders, but actually you're just making it making people more scared and more likely to um, more likely to travel because they think they're running away from something. Um, There's a lot of, you know, like panic where people think that they need something and they freak out about it. And, you know, we're seeing that now with, with toilet paper, you know, like runs on toilet paper in the store, even though that makes no sense, you know, with respect to the disease itself. Um, So I, I do find that that's interesting. And there's a lot of sort of cautionary tales about, you know, if you freak out about something that you don't quite understand, um, you know, people can, can draw some of the wrong conclusions or do things that they think are benefiting themselves in the short term, but that might actually be bad long term. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a weird thing to, to look at this, having that perspective. Um, and I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if I have any like great cheerful lessons to bring from that, but just like to always be aware of unintended consequences and always be aware of the way that like things can change as you learn more about something, you know, we can, right. yeah, we, yeah, we can, you know, take action based on what we think we know about something, but you know, even these days when the the science is proceeding very fast, like we already have the genome of this. We had like, we knew exactly what its, its RNA sequence was within weeks of it being discovered. Um, so like in a sense, we know a lot, but we also like, until you see it spread, you don't know how it's going to spread. There's a lot of things we still don't know. Right. And it sounds like some of those lessons learned from history are, you know, don't panic. You don't need to go run the stores and clean them out of supplies that you're simply not going to run out of uh, and get as knowledgeable as you can about what's going on, because that's going to help you make better decisions. Is it fair to say that you're anti-quarantine? It sounds like that's not really an effective measure to contain or slow the spread of a virus like this. So I, I would not say that I'm anti-quarantine. Definitely not. Um, but it's but that's sort of a complicated question because when you talk to public health people about what quarantine means, it's like okay, quarantine is different from isolation, and that's different from social distancing. And if you look at, I mean, like there there are still you know very knowledgeable experts with very good judgment who still disagree about like what are some of the best measures to take at this point. So I am not one of those experts, and I'm not going to say like oh this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. Like that is not my place. And I do not presume to know enough to say, you know, I, I mean, like, I might have some gut reactions on things about like, oh, that doesn't seem like a good idea. But I'm not, I, I'm not going to make those judgments. Um, I will say that it helps. What one of the sources that I've been looking to is the World Health Organization, simply because they're, um, they seem to have a pretty good grasp on what is going on in different countries. And they're making some recommendations, but they're also saying like what people should do may vary from country to country, because if you tell everybody to do something and it's not something that makes sense to them, like socially or culturally or whatever, like it doesn't, if some, if people aren't going to follow a directive or a recommendation, then maybe that's not the right one to make. And so things that worked in China are maybe not necessarily going to work in the U S even apart from the biology of the virus. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a really, you know, what measures we should be taking is like a really difficult question. And I think we should be looking to like the best experts to see what they say. Yeah, I've been relying a lot on WHO guidance and also the CDC guidance. I found that to be level headed and uh, very common sense. It seems like they're they're trying to be uh, proactive while at the same time not causing a panic in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was also a really interesting graphic in the Washington Post today. And again, we're recording this on Sunday, the 15th of March. But um, it was talking about different strategies for containment and and how, you know, a quarantine is very rarely a full quarantine unless you have, you know, like a cruise ship that's just all by itself for weeks on end. Um, but even with a partial quarantine, you know, that just doesn't really protect as many people. And and they had this really cool info. It wasn't an infographic, but it was um, a graphic that showed just through random kind of balls moving around, you know, how an infection can move through a population, even with a semi-quarantine. And, and I found that really interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, ha I haven't looked. I, I think I've seen that, but I haven't looked through all the, the graphics on that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I find that really interesting. And, you know, and, go and going back to the idea of like different countries doing things different ways. Um, there's a, there was a really interesting interview. I think it was on the Rachel Maddow show with um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's a reporter at The New York Times. And he was talking about what they're doing in or what they yeah, what they are doing in China and the way they had set up these fever clinics. And so if you have a fever, you don't go to the hospital, you go to this clinic and they have this procedure that um, basically they came up when, with when they had SARS, which was a very scary respiratory disease that um, 2003, I think. And so, um, and SARS did not end up going worldwide, but a lot of people were very concerned that it would, and it was a very serious disease. And so they, they sort of brought back up some of the the stuff they had in place then, some of the plans they had in place then. So they had these fever clinics and you would come in and they would very quickly test you for certain things. They had like a CT scanner that, you know, in this, you know, for us, that's like a, a major thing that you would have to like get a CT scan, but there they had like these little portable scanners. And, you know, once you get through this, you, you know, if they rule out certain other things, then they do your COVID test. And then, and you're actually staying there in this little tent until, they find like away from your family, you're not going home to your family, you're staying there until they find out whether or not you have COVID. And that's a very different way than how we're handling it here. You know, where they're telling people, okay, if you feel like you have a fever, stay home. But that also means like that. So you're not going to the hospital. So that's good. But you're also with your family, you know, and, and it's like, how is that? You know, like, are we is this going to be as effective? And but on the other hand, like if I got a fever, would I want to immediately have to go somewhere and like be away from my family? I don't know if I would want that. So it's just there's a it's it's really difficult to, you know, find the best way of dealing with this. It's funny you bring up that interview because I think I saw that clip as well. He's a science journalist for the New York Times. And uh, the Chinese response is just very different than the United States response because of that reason. They have this almost like a secondary healthcare system that is set up specifically for outbreaks like this, where, you know, you're not going to a hospital, you're not going home to infect your family. Because I think there was a statistic, something like 70 to 80% of new cases were due to family clusters. And this method of dealing with these infections kind of puts puts them in their own kind of category. It, 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 funnels people into one system where, you know, you're not commingling with, you know, patients in the hospital who are there for completely unrelated reasons. And, you know, I don't know if that's ever going to happen here, but, um, you know, it's just uh, something interesting to think about. Uh, you know, Beth, I think one of the big buzz terms that we're hearing these days is social distancing. Uh, how are you kind of doing this? Because I know while you're not a runner, you're a strength athlete, you're a power lifter. How are you dealing with social distancing as an athlete? What kind of precautions are you taking? Yeah. So I think the most important thing to remember about social distancing, um, you know, especially if people get kind of confused about like, okay, but what can I do or what shouldn't I do is I think of it as two things, right? You want to stay six feet away from other people, because that's, you know, if they cough, if they sneeze, if they're breathing, if they're not going to breathe on you if they're six feet away. And um, and the other thing is don't touch things that other people are touching. And this is both to protect you from what somebody else might have, but also to protect other people from something that you might have and like you don't realize it yet. Like, oh, you coughed once this morning, but you don't think you're sick. But, you know, maybe tonight you're going to come down with a fever and be like, oh, crap, what did I touch? So um, 
So as long as you can stay away from other people and not touch things that other people are touching and, and or be very good about, you know, washing your hands and disinfecting surfaces, then I'm going ahead and doing things that, um, you know, that would fall within those, those bounds. So something that I found a lot of people asking me is like, is it okay to go for a walk or go for a run? And, you know, if you're like on a crowded city street, maybe not, but, um, you know, but if you're like out on your own, then like, that's good. Like I'm actually thinking like I might, you know, get back to running. I used to run a lot more um, because I know that that's a thing that I can do even if my gym were to close or even if I were to decide not to go to the gym. Um, And when I do go to the gym, um, pardon me, I'm, I mean, like there's a lot of, of sort of a judgment call here, right? Like if I were feeling sick, I should absolutely stay home. If I, um, but since I'm not, since like there aren't really a lot of cases in my city that I know of, you know, it, it's just a matter, I think, of like minimizing the amount of contact I have with people, um, you know, remembering that like six foot rule and the touching things other people touch rule. So I have still been going to the gym. And when I go into the gym, there's a sign on the door saying, please use hand sanitizer before you touch anything. And so I do. And, you know, and I try to be very careful not to like touch my face while I'm there and um, to like wipe everything down when I finish with it. And I'm not doing like a class where I'm going to be real close to other people. I'm usually like lifting on my own platform, um, you know, and I'm going to keep going, I think, as long as my gym is open. But it's but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of judgment call to be done there. And like if I were, you know, in a higher risk population, I might stay home or I might you know, I, I think it's very reasonable. A lot of people are saying, you know what, I'm just going to work out at home now. And, you know, there's a lot that you can do at home. And I think that's also a very reasonable choice to make these days. Right. I think when we're talking about should, the question of should I go to the gym, it's a pretty complicated question because, you know, first of all, it depends, you know, it, are you a senior citizen yourself? If you are, I, I don't know, I wouldn't take that risk with myself. You know, that's again, if you're in a vulnerable population, uh, if you're feeling ill at all, or, you know, also, I think it depends on the type of gym that you might have. If it's a very busy gym that is usually crowded, the machines or, and all the free weights are super close together, that might not be the best environment to find yourself in with a lot of people. Um, but if your gym is, is kind of small and there's not a lot of people there and you have your own space and you're also super careful on top of things, then, you know, to me that, that, seems like you're doing your best at practicing social distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad to hear that you might get started with running again. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, running is is one of those activities where, yeah, it might be a little bit lonely, but in times like these, uh, that's definitely a, a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think runners should definitely also, um, you know, take a little bit of solace in the fact that the thing that they like doing the most going out for their run is something that they can definitely keep doing during a time like this. You know, I I don't think big group runs are a good idea. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think going to the track with your local club for a workout is a great idea. Um, But for the most part, most runners can can really stick with their training. And um, even if their race was canceled, you know, later, later this spring, uh, they could continue with their training and just keep, you know, getting to new levels of fitness. Just like if your powerlifting meet 
uh, six weeks from now was canceled, you know, you could still train like it's going on. Um, and then maybe put yourself in a position to run, lift a lot of weight or run really fast, but then never actually do the meet or have the race, which is frustrating for a lot of folks I know, but it's not like that fitness goes away. It's still there. And, And I think if we can just do some maintenance work as athletes, you know, later this summer or fall, when we can really put together a more coherent season, when it, things aren't so crazy, then I think we can take advantage of all the fitness we've built over this time and still have some great races or powerlifting meets, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great idea. Cause I, I had, I actually just lifted at the Arnold in Columbus. So that was at the beginning of March and I didn't know if it was still going to happen. And they ended up saying, okay, we're we'll still hold the meet, but no spectators. And so that really brought down the number of people who would be there. Um, And for that timing, I think that was a good decision to make. But also I think if it were being held like next week, it would probably just be canceled entirely. And so I have some things on my schedule that I'm hoping to do. And like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I was actually going to ask, ask what you thought of that about like, what do you do for your training if you don't know if the race is going on? Or if you don't know if you're like training for anything or not. I mean, my thinking is to stay optimistic and to do the best you can when it comes to training on any given day, you know, focus on the process of training, just do the best you can. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if your race is canceled, well, maybe you can go outside and you can run a time trial. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have a home gym set up, you know, you can continue to lifting weights. Maybe you can set up your own you know, a little powerlifting meet at home, if that's a possibility too. I was going to say that there's, you know, it's a thing that like we'll do sometimes uh, just called a mock meet. And sometimes like a gym will hold a mock meet, but also you could just do one on your own and be like, okay, on this particular day, I'm going to see what's my best, you know, what my best lifts are, you know? So you can still do that. And like, it's not the same as doing it at a meet, but you can still like set a new PR and give yourself, you know, like that little taper and that little chance to do your best. And I could definitely see that being like a sort of small, a small silver lining on, on the end of your training cycle, even if you can't do a real meet or a real race. Absolutely. And you know what? Runners can do the same thing too. Uh, those runners who are training for really long events, like the marathon, maybe an ultra marathon, it's going to be really hard to do that by yourself. Uh, I can't think of a, a, <laughs> a worse thing to do than go run a marathon as hard as I can by myself. Oh, man. Um, you know, I, I kind of have to be in a race with the crowd and, you know, the official structure of the race for me to really put forth a good effort like that. But you can certainly, you know, go run a good long run, you know, go do a workout within a long run to give yourself at least uh, some semblance of what a marathon might look like. But I think the shorter events, like even a half marathon or less, you can go out there and run a time trial out there on the roads. And, and I think that is... Um, you know, not the ideal way of testing your fitness. Obviously, a real race is how you actually would want to test your fitness. But, you know, right now we kind of have to look for the do the best you can situation. And I think a time trial checks that box and, and allows runners to get in a really hard effort to test themselves. You know, whatever their result might be, of course, won't be official. But again, your fitness doesn't go away. It doesn't change anything. And you can really just keep snowballing that fitness throughout the summer and the fall and still have some great performances. Mm -hmm. Um, Beth, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know, 
based on the trajectory of this thing, based on you know your research into other epidemics and pandemics, and I know, of course, they're not the same, but it does give you some perspective. What do you think the next one, two, three months might look like here in the United States? That's the thing where I, I'm wondering the same thing. And as far as I can tell from what the experts are saying, like we don't know. And it may depend very much on how good a job we do of dealing with the stage that we're in now. And um, it really does not reassure me the fact that we really don't have enough testing now to know what, you know, like how many cases we have and what the epidemic is looking like and, and everything. So we do know that if you look at China and I think South Korea now are both having their cases decline, like they still have a lot going on, but it's still, but it's declining, which shows that you can turn it around in the space of a few months. But also, like, are we up to the task? I don't know. So, and then you also have to sort of wonder about, like, well, what are, you know, like, even if we're we're past the worst of it in the U.S. in a certain amount of time, what's going on in other countries? How much do we have to worry about international travel? You know, I just see it as like a whole lot of unknowns. You know, for for at least at least months to come before we even get a good sense of what's going on. I just don't think we have the information to answer that question. So. Personally, for me right now, I have a few things on my calendar. I have something at the end of April and I have some things in June and I'm like hoping the things in June are still going to happen. I'm not feeling great about the things at the end of April, but also it just really depends on what happens in these next few weeks and just sort of like playing it day to day. Like I truly don't think we can make any good assumptions about what's going to happen going forward. Yeah. And I think that uncertainty is what is causing so many of us to have this anxiety because we don't know what, you know, the next month or two or three is going to look like. Um, And I've seen a lot of folks ask, is something like this even preventable? Can we prevent a future outbreak like this from happening? Or is our only hope containing it and slowing the spread of it? I think the way that you would like, like if we had a crystal ball and knew exactly what was coming, like what should we have done? You know, and it still would have been about containing and slowing the spread. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think that, like, if we were optimally prepared, it would look very different from how we are now, um, just in terms of being able to test for it quickly and being able to, you know, come up with some good recommendations to give to people before it's even here. And there ended up being a lot of, I think, confusion about people saying, like, don't panic, don't freak out. You know, it's basically just the flu. And like, at first, that kind of seemed like a reasonable thing to be saying, because, okay, it's a respiratory disease, it's happening, you know, across an ocean from us. And, you know, what we all we should be doing is just, you know, like trying to be smart about everything, you know, wash your hands, whatever. And like, but it changes. And like, the reason for the changing advice to people is because the situation is changing and the way you handle it at different stages of the epidemic is different. Um, But that said, like, it does not seem like our public health people in this country have, you know, have done like we don't seem to be handling it as well as they have been in other countries. I'll just put it that way. And, you know, I feel like there are things that could have been done before this to make us better prepared. But that's also just like not where we are now. Like there is a pandemic task force that was defunded in like 2018 or something like that you know like we we could have put more resources into being prepared um but like we've just never had something like this 
you know, come to our country in recent memory and we're not prepared for it, you know, and like compare what we're doing to what China is doing. And like they went through SARS and they, you know, had to think through a lot of these problems about like, how are we going to deal with this and what are we going to do in the future? And um, and yeah, so I think the answer is you can plan to be able to like a country, you know, or a world can plan to be able to deal with it better. Um, I don't think that the U.S. is in that position. Um, and I would hope that we learn from this and set things up better for the future because you never know when the next one's going to come. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And what's frustrating to me is that I feel like we did sort of learn some of these lessons in the past, you know, particularly with Ebola in 2014. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that uh, pandemic response group, I think it was part of the National Security Council. And yeah, it was disbanded and disfunded uh, or unfunded in 2018. And so mm -hmm. that's just frustrating because it's exactly, you know, the group of people who were supposed to be in charge of something like this. And mm -hmm. uh, it seems like we just got rid of them for <laughs> no good reason. Yeah. Um, and, and it seems like all this uncertainty, it seems like this lack of preparation really makes the social distancing um, and the hand washing, ultimately, like kind of up to the people, even more important. Is that right? Yeah, I think so, definitely. And and that's also what makes it really hard because people are sort of taking their own, um, you know, like people are sort of forming their own opinions on it and being like, "Well, screw you, I'm going out and partying because this can't stop me." And it's like, well, that that's an attitude that like was really like inspirational in the face of terrorism, you know, like you can't scare me. I'm still gonna, you know, go to this, you know, race or this, you know, I'm going to run Boston again or something like that. And, but like, it doesn't really work here, but you know, but people like, we have never seen anything like this. So people are sort of figuring out what their own response is going to be like emotionally and socially and everything. And, I think it's very understandable that people are coming up with different ways of dealing with that. And like, whether you're worried about it and like hiding in your house or whether you're worried about it and like dealing with that by, you know, taking like a fuck you attitude and, and, you know, doing the opposite of what all the public health recommendations are. Like, I think people are, people are worried on some level and dealing with it in their own way. But like, we don't, we just don't have like a an ingrained common sense this is how i should react to this situation because we've not really had a situation like this and so and that itself is kind of anxiety inducing that we're sort of in uncharted territory and we just have to kind of do our best yeah i i keep thinking about this because obviously different types of crises warrant different responses yeah. and you mentioned you know running boston marathon i did exactly that thing i was a spectator in 2013 the year that the boston bombing occurred and then i ran boston in 2014 as a sign of solidarity and you're absolutely right to kind of show that just because there was a terrorist attack on the marathon that that doesn't mean that runners are now going to be scared to uh, to run the race. And it, it was a courageous act, I think, for people to run the 2014 Boston Marathon. And and now we're facing a totally different crisis. And the courageous act is to like stay home and not, not go meet your friends out for a drink. It's almost the complete opposite. And what we used to think was tough in the face of terrorism is now just really dumb in the face of a viral threat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, Beth, thank you so much for sitting down with me and helping me work through some of these things. And I appreciate kind of your perspective on things, considering you've done a lot of research and scholarship on some past 
epidemics and pandemics in the past. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is really important or that the runners listening to this should know about? No, I think you pretty much covered everything. I don't think I have any like super wise last words, but just, you know, like just keep keep up with the current situation and don't assume that you know what to do because you know, even if you're currently doing the right thing, things might change. I would say look to the World Health Organization. They seem to be very trustworthy and, you know, to be honest, not quite screwing up the same things that our government is, um, you know, like get good information. And if people are telling you stuff, there's a lot of stuff going around on social media and whatever, like go, go to like the World Health Organization or somebody like that and like look it up from like public health epidemiology people and just like do do what you can do what's the best that we know in this moment and be prepared for things to change because we don't know if this is going to fizzle out quickly in which case that would be a really good thing and probably mean that like the things we're doing are working um it might fizzle out quickly it might be you know a long spring and summer for us and so we don't know so just hang in there and do the best you can and try to be smart Well put. Thank you, Beth. And if you're listening to this and you wanted to learn even more about pandemics, I'm not sure why, but if you're a masochist, Beth's book is called Outbreak, 50 Tales of Epidemics That Terrorized the World. It's on Amazon and it'd be some good reading for while you are stuck at home. Beth, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's my conversation with Beth. I hope you enjoyed it and that it was helpful as you plan for your health and safety this spring. Now, let's talk more about your running. Things are changing quickly, and we're not sure what the next few months are going to look like, but we should be prepared. First, I would encourage you not to listen to my advice about the coronavirus. I'm not giving medical guidance because I'm not qualified. You should check out the World Health Organization, the CDC, and great media reporting and outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times. I also want to encourage you to do what you can from a fitness perspective. Many of the bodyweight workouts we use at strength running, like the standard core routine, the ITB rehab routine, the gauntlet plank workout, the standard warm-up, and the tomahawk medicine ball workout can all be done at home by yourself. These are free routines that you can either Google or search on the strength running blog to find, and there's no better way to start focusing on strength than by doing it at home. And these routines are incredibly runner specific. You can use this time to redouble your strength training efforts while avoiding the gym. It's safer and you're still going to get in fantastic shape. Next, I do think it's a great idea to avoid any group runs, club workouts, fitness classes, or other activities with large gatherings. Instead, connect with other runners virtually where you can still support one another, motivate each other, but do so in a safer way. We have a few options to help you do this. First, I'm opening team strength running to anybody who would like to join. This is our group coaching program that gives you access to an entire library of strength routines, training plans, more than 35 expert interviews, gear discounts, me as your coach, and a community of other runners. If you'd like to join, we're only $25 a month and you can email me at support at strengthrunning.com and I'll help you sign up. We haven't been open in a long time, but I wanna give you this opportunity to connect with other runners now. Next, check out the Rambling Runners virtual race series at theramblingrunner.com slash virtual race series. Now, virtual race series is all one word. There's no hyphens at all. So that's theramblingrunner.com slash virtual race series. 
I'm going to be participating in the 5K, the 10K, and the half marathon, and it'd be great to have a fun competitive series of races that we can still all do together. Matt from the Rambling Runner podcast has done an excellent job getting folks excited for this, and after talking to him after the Olympic Trials Marathon recap, I'm excited to participate. Finally, I want to talk briefly about how strength running is going to operate in the coming weeks and potentially months. Um, Our plans at strength running, in terms of how the business is going to operate, it's not going to go on exactly as usual. I've canceled upcoming marketing campaigns because, frankly, I don't feel right focusing on sales at a time like this. You can still go to strengthrunning.com slash coaching and sign up for any of our programs, custom training plan, our strength training programs, whatever looks interesting to you. They're all still available. I just won't be actively selling them to you. However, all of our current existing automated sales campaigns are going to continue. My rationale for this is twofold. First, they're only being run to new subscribers. So if someone is actively subscribing, my thought is that they want to hear from strength running. And two, it's honestly more difficult to pause and restart these than it seems. So I'm going to leave them in place. I'm going to continue to publish new content to Strength Running's blog, YouTube channel, and podcast. And I promise it will not all be about the coronavirus. In fact, after this podcast episode, I doubt I will be doing much more about the virus. I personally need some non-coronavirus content, and I'm going to continue producing it for that reason, because I know I'm not alone. So I hope this bonus episode was helpful to you. Above all, I hope that you stay safe. I hope that you're able to maintain your fitness, and we can all focus on having a great summer and fall season of running. Until next time.